had changed her status and given her the greatest privilege imaginable. She would be the mother of the Lord of the universe. But God has not just acted in mercy toward Mary. He has acted in mercy toward all who call on the name of Jesus, toward each one of us. In fact, that's the very essence of Christ, to act in mercy. And that's the very essence of Christmas. This ancient carol teaches us that Christmas is about celebrating God's mercy to us in Christ. Christmas is about celebrating God's mercy to us in Christ. So Mary's song is about God's mercy, and it can be divided into three sections. And the first of these sections is found in verse, verses 46 through 49, which I have entitled God's mercy on Mary. Look with me again at verse 46. 46b, actually. Mary bursts into song and says, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. Mary is ecstatic. We might even call her giddy. She's like a teenage girl going to the prom, except she's not in this case. She's praising her Lord with butterflies in her stomach and a bounce in her step. She magnifies the Lord. And that word magnify, of course, is the very namesake for this song. Magnificat is Latin for magnifies. My soul magnifies the Lord. So what exactly does that mean? What does Mary mean when she says, my soul magnifies the Lord. Well, just think about it. To magnify something is to make something appear greater. For example, most of us have used a microscope in a biology class to look at the tiniest of cells. Or we've used a, a magnifying glass to look at the fine print on a bank statement or something. And in, in both of these cases, we're looking at tiny objects, tiny cells, tiny print, in order to make them appear greater. But that's not what Mary's doing. You can't put Almighty God on a test slide. You can't put the God of all creation under a microscope. He won't fit. So what's Mary doing? Mary is magnifying God for how great he really is. And that's what we do, as John Piper has noted. That's what we do, not with a microscope, but with a telescope. You use a microscope to look at tiny things to make them look greater. You use a telescope to look at huge things to make them appear more as they really are. And that's what Mary is doing for the Lord. And that's what worship is in its purest sense. It's praising the greatness of God. Now, we might always not understand what we're doing or realize what we're doing 
In fact, most of the time we don't. But we can be certain that whenever we stand in awe of Almighty God, at his greatness, at his power, we are magnifying the Lord and joining Mary in doing so, just as she did here. Some think of worship as some sort of stiff, stoic exercise, you know, even even robotic. But that's not what Mary is doing at all, even though she comes from the background of a pretty stiff Jewish liturgy and order of service. She's making the most out of it. She sings in the very next line, my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. Mary enjoyed worshiping God. For her, joy and worship went hand in hand. They weren't polar opposites. Is that your experience? Do you uh, enjoy worshiping God? Certainly there are moments in our worship services that are a bit more somber and reflective. We confess our sins every week, and to some of us that seems incredibly morbid and depressing. But what's the point of confession? It's joy, isn't it? It's the joy of knowing that our sins are forgiven and that our fellowship with God, which we have broken, is restored. Haven't you experienced that joy with a friend or a spouse when you've done something that really wrongs them and they, they come up to you say, I'm sorry, and they say, I forgive you, and everything's right again. There's joy. It's fresh. It's so important. That's what we do when we confess our sins. But notice why Mary is so joyful. She rejoices in God, her Savior. So just like you and I, Mary understood that she lived in a broken world. Even she was broken. But in the midst of her brokenness, she held on to to God's promise of a Savior. And here's where it begins. If you don't know Jesus as Mary knew him, or as she would come to know him as Savior, God has sent his Son in the flesh so that you might know him as your Redeemer and friend. And when we look to Jesus as our Savior, he comes into our lives And turns our brokenness into blessedness. That's what he did for Mary. And that's what he can do for you and for me. Whatever brokenness you're experiencing this morning. Sometimes the holidays remind us of of such brokenness, right? The brokenness of family relationships. The brokenness of your health. The brokenness of your hopes And dreams, most importantly, the brokenness of your relationship with God that sin brings. Turn to the Lord Jesus. Trust in him. And he will enter your life as he entered the world 2,000 years ago. He will come in the midst of your pain and bring you unprecedented peace and joy.
That's what a Savior does. And notice what this Savior had done for Mary. Verse 48. Mary says in verse 48, For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. And Luke's verbiage here is is very important. This song of Mary's is, is, is dripping. It's foaming at the brim with allusions to the Old Testament. It's rich in Old Testament language. And in the Old Testament, God's look was God's love. Have you ever noticed that? So Hagar, Sarah's maiden, Abram's mistress, Hagar praised God in the wilderness for seeing her affliction. Hannah asked God in the temple to look on her barrenness. And just so, Mary is praising God for noticing her miserable condition. By the way, did you notice that all those people were women? People who in that culture were so often overlooked. No one gave a thought. But God looks to those who are overlooked. Who was Mary that God should call her? As I've said before, she was a poor, teenaged Jewish girl from Nazareth. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? And according to our standards, look, there were far better options. How about a queen or a princess or just what about Elizabeth? She's right there. She's the wife of a noble priest. Why don't you choose her, God? But God called Mary out of his mercy. He always calls people out of his mercy. We never deserve his blessing. Remember what the Apostle Paul told the Corinthians. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. And here's the catch. So that no human being might what? Boast. In the presence of God. So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. God does not save us because he's impressed with us. Some of us need to hear that. God did not save you because he was impressed with you. But some of you need to hear, in fact all of us need to hear, but not, that, that neither does God run away from us. Because he's embarrassed by us. He looks on us and he has mercy. In fact, it is only because of God's mercy toward Mary that she can say, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. Notice what else God had done for Mary. She says in verse 49 that God had done great things for her. Do you see that? God had done great things for her. God had done unthinkably wonderful things for Mary. He had chosen her to bear his son 
He had sent the angel Gabriel to tell her the good news. He had filled Elizabeth with the Holy Spirit so that, and, and caused her to announce blessing after blessing after blessing on Mary. Mary was overwhelmed by the great things God had done for her. She calls him holy and mighty because only he had the power to work these miracles in her life. Now, certainly, Mary experienced a very special work of God in her life. He, he did, God did great things for her that we should not expect him to do for us. But at the same time, we would be wrong to think that God does not give to us the same mercy that he gave to Mary. Now, as we see in the next section, verses 50 through 53, God's mercy is on all who fear him. God's mercy is on all who fear him. Look with me at verse 50. Mary says, and his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. So Mary says that God's mercy is available to everybody, not just to her. But although his mercy is available to everyone, it is only given to some. I'm not making this up. It's right here. Did you notice that? On the one hand, God's mercy is from generation to generation. It's timeless. It's unchangeable. It's faithful. God's arms of love are always open all the time to everyone without question. In fact, in the Old Testament, he said in Isaiah 65, all day long, I hold out my arms of love, that is, to a rebellious, obstinate people. He's still doing that. But on the other hand, God's mercy is especially for those who fear him. Now, what does that mean to fear God? You've heard it before. This concept is used over a hundred times, the fear of the Lord and so on in the Bible, particularly in the Old Testament scriptures, even more particularly in the book of Proverbs. But God's mercy is for those who fear him. This is a healthy kind of fear. It's not the kind of fear that a man might have when confronted with a wild, ravenous tiger. It's the kind of fear that a child might have when confronted by a loving parent. It's the kind of fear that causes us not to run away in cowardice, but to recognize authority and obey. God's mercy is for those who fear him in this way. It's for those who, like Mary, acknowledge their misery and see their need for a savior. Whoever does this has God on their side. God fights for these people. He rescues them from all oppression. That's what Mary illustrates for us in the next few verses. You see that. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry 
with good things. And the rich he has sent away empty. Now what was Mary describing here? Uh, Certainly she was describing what God had always done for those who fear him. But more specifically, she was describing what the child in her womb would do in the very near future. Jesus Christ would start a revolution. In fact, this very song has been used in many third world countries to lift people's hopes when they're oppressed and to inspire, rightly or wrongly, revolution. Jesus would eat with those rejected by society, sinners, tax collectors, prostitutes, and the poor. He would oppose the proud, but give grace to the humble. That's what his kingdom would be about. D.L. Moody has said that the only people God sends away empty are those who are full of themselves. And that's the same concept here. That's what Mary's talking about. You don't have to be a VIP for entrance into Jesus' kingdom. Wealth and success and good looks and celebrity status will get you nowhere. That takes a lot for me to say that. All you need to be is helpless and humble. God scatters the proud. He brings down the mighty from their thrones, but he exalts those of humble estate. Jesus saves only those who cry out to him in helpless despair, just like the lepers did last week, if you remember. Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. And you can be sure that if you cry out to him in your helplessness, in your despair, in your sin and misery, He won't ignore you. In fact, you are the very reason he has come. God has mercy on all who fear him. The final two verses of Mary's song, verses 54 and 55, are a celebration of God's mercy on his people. God's mercy on his people. As I mentioned Earlier, all these Christmas carols that we'll be looking at over the next four weeks communicate the same message. Does anyone remember what that message is? 20 minutes later. God, that's right. God has kept his promises. See, the audio won't catch up that you all didn't say that. So God, that's right. You all got it. God has kept his promises. Man, you guys are sharp. And it is what it is... uh, with that very same message that Mary ends her song. She sings in celebration, verse 54 and 55, He has helped His servant Israel in remembrance of His mercy as He spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to His offspring forever. Now, what is this promise to Abraham that Mary speaks of? And this is the point where everyone in my equipping class rolls their eyes and says, here we go again. In Genesis, you're not supposed to laugh at that. In Genesis 12, God made a promise to Abraham that from his line would come a savior who would rid the world of evil and bring blessing 
to all the families of the earth. God, through the Savior, would reverse the curse that he had put on all the created order in Genesis 3 and would restore the whole created order to a state of blessing, to paradise, to peace. This was the central promise of the Old Testament, the promise that God made to Abraham. And by the time the New Testament begins, nearly 2,000 years after that promise had been made, the people of Israel were still waiting for God to send the promised Savior. As it turns out, they were just as terrible at waiting as we are. We hate waiting. Some of us have been listening to Christmas music since October. Some of us have been waiting for lunch ever since I got up here. We hate waiting. But can you imagine waiting 2,000 years for God to fulfill a promise? And the thing is, I think we can. That's what Advent is all about. It's about waiting expectantly for the second coming of our Lord Jesus. It's been 2,000 years. How can we know that God has not forgotten his promise? How can we know that Jesus is really going to return? That this all isn't just a sham? We have to trust in God's mercy, just like Mary did. And that only comes from reflecting on what God, on how God has shown his mercy to his people in the past. For Mary, this would have been, for those like her, it would have been the exodus and the giving of the law and the building of the temple and the return from exile. But what is it for us? Certainly it's all those things, but more. God has shown us his mercy through his own son. He took on flesh and was born in a manger. He healed diseases and preached the gospel to us. He died on the cross in our place. He rose again in victory. He ascended into heaven always to make intercession for us. God has been so merciful to us. Why should we think that we forget that he would forget about us? He remembers his mercy on his people. And since we know that God will never forget his promise, we can have much joy in our waiting. With Mary, we can magnify the Lord and rejoice in God, our Savior, because he has done great things for us. And he will certainly do them again. This Christmas season, enjoy the wait. Enjoy the expectancy. Enjoy the anticipation. Because Christmas is coming. And Christ is coming too. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the certainty that we have 
in your mercy. We know from your scriptures and from our own experiences even that you will not forget your promises, that you will always have mercy on your people. Confirm that great truth to us this Christmas. Help us to have joy in our waiting. And where there is despair in our lives in this season, we pray that you would bring us fullness of joy. The joy that comes only when we fall down at the manger, at the cross, at the empty grave and praise of what you have done for us in sending your own son to become man so that we might in turn become like you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand as we sing.